Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of Worth Point LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Worth Point. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Too much company stock. Could there be such a thing? Too much company stock? Well, now what? Hey, what's up, everyone? John Chapman. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. And this week, I want to talk about some really practical ideas around having company stock. Maybe it's in the form of stock options or RSUs, ESPP, whatever it is. Uh, Oftentimes, as you climb that corporate ladder, it's going to make up a larger and larger percentage of your overall compensation and ultimately, maybe even your net worth. So maybe you've been grinding away at your job. You know, you're in a sales position, maybe you're a product manager, and your hard work is being rewarded. And that's a great thing. But now it's not coming as just salary cash. It's coming as company stock. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Get the company. Get the company. Drink the Kool-Aid. Drink the Kool-Aid. I'll stop because I'm not a good singer. There's just one problem. Your company stock is now the majority of your net worth, or mm, at least it will be when it vests. And you know, that makes me think of Notorious B.I.G., who said it best, mo money, mo problems. Am I right? And if you walk down any Wall Street or most financial professionals, they're going to freak out, tell you that you need to sell all your company stock tomorrow and commence the eye rolling. And they're right except for, you know, the the taxes and the vesting and the blackout dates. You get what I mean. It's not real life. So instead of just saying, hey, sell the stock like a robot um, and have you roll your eyes and move on, let's actually approach this problem from a few different angles. And before we get into the three practical things that I want to share some insight on, Let me build out a model scenario. I'm taking this from lots of different client scenarios, but it doesn't represent anyone in particular. And as you know, we need to be really careful about giving uh, testimonials uh, in this world, and that's that's forbidden. That's a no-no in financial services land. So this isn't a testimonial, and, of course, don't take this as advice. Okay, let's create a scenario. And I'm going to say a married couple that both works. They're in their late 30s, and they have two young children. Uh, They moved to the Burbs a couple years ago. They bought that house and put 20% down. Let's just say it was $500,000 house, and they put down 100K, and uh, that's their equity in the home. So let's do a little bit of net worth spreadsheet so you, you know what we're working with with my hypothetical family here. Let's say they've got a combined $250,000 in retirement accounts. They've paid off all their other debts, so they don't have any other non-retirement stock. But through stock options and unvested RSUs, they have now a whopping 800000 in company stock from their publicly traded company. 
if we start to look at their balance sheet, it makes a whole lot of sense. You've got $100,000 in a house, so that's illiquid asset. Uh, you've got $250,000 in your 401k. That's spread out in some you know, low-cost diversified mutual funds, so that's not company stock, and it's also not very liquid. And now you've got this impending wave of $800,000. Maybe a portion of that's vested, and then another portion was going to vest over the next few years. Well, that's a pretty lopsided net worth. That is a pretty lopsided net worth. And, and, and with joking aside, it really does need to be something that this family does need to tend to, and they need to start with the end in mind, meaning thinking ahead to some day of financial independence and work backwards from there. But before just you know pulling the trigger and selling the stock, let's now talk about three practical things that this family can do before changing their investments. So the first thing is keeping your mindset in check. The second is combining an appropriate insurance and estate plan and overlapping this on top of their investment plan. And at third, it's sitting down with a financial planner to map out the vesting timeframes and deciding what amount you're going to sell and what amount you're going to hold from this company stock. Those are the three things. Let's go back in and dive a little bit deeper. Number one, keep your mindset in check. Oh, man, uh, I don't know about you, but you start to have that uh, those RSUs and stock options build up and your net worth is getting bigger and bigger. Maybe you've had a quarterly earnings and the stock price increased and all of a sudden your net worth uh, shot up uh, 5 or 10%. Keeping your mindset in check is by far one of the most important things that you need to be thinking about. If you fall into this category, if you have any resemblance of this situation, keeping your mindset in check is the most important thing. You know, they say that personal finance is 90% personal and 10% finance. And what that means is it's 90% emotions. It's, it's your fear and greed battling against each other. And on the one hand, it's this uh, exciting greed to think, gosh, maybe I won't have to work as hard as my parents did. Or maybe I get to start a side hustle business and I don't have to work this corporate career forever. And that's all these greed components. And, or maybe it's, I want all the toys. I want a bigger house. I want to keep up with the Joneses. And uh, again, that's maybe a fear mentality from a mindset perspective. But here is my pro tip for keeping your mindset in check. And this is going to hurt. You're only as good as your salary. Oof, yeah, I said it. You're only as good as your salary. What do I mean by that? Let's say your overall compensation, but you know, and with both working spouses, is north of uh, three hundred thousand dollars. But that includes the stock that you're getting. So really, your take-home pay is maybe around that hundred and twenty thousand dollars to hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So that's the regular paycheck that's coming in bi-monthly, and that's what you can rely on for your spending. And really, it's not even just that hundred and fifty k. It's actually like 60% of that, right? You're paying for your medical premiums. You're paying the taxes because your company does that automatically from your payroll. So you're getting your gross salary minus the 401k, minus the healthcare premiums, minus the taxes. You're just getting you know, somewhere in the ballpark of probably 60% of that salary. 
And so this is what you have to live off of. And it's my deep hope that you actually take this to heart, especially in this situation, while you're very much so in a building phase of your career. That might sound tight, that might sound limiting, but going above and beyond spending for your salary, I mean like day-to-day spending, you know, um, you know, going out and having food. Uh, we're going to cover some other items like large expenses in just a moment. But if your day-to-day lifestyle creep is going to get above and beyond your salary and it's going to start eating into your equity compensation, um, you're, you're, you're potentially going to run into a situation where you're mortgaging the future, meaning you're just spending now and not allowing allowing that extra, that early amounts of savings to grow and compound to really blossom so that you can have some sense of financial independence in the future. So as polarizing as he is, Dave Ramsey has one of the best lines on this, where he says, if you want to live like no one else, live like no one else today, meaning stay tight, keep within your means, you're only as good as your salary, so that you can live like no one else tomorrow, meaning you can enjoy some type of financial independence and not be one of these BS statistics about how the medium household in America has less than $400 in their checking and savings account. So that might sound like a downer, but I want this to be encouragement that if you could go even just uh, five years, maybe even seven years before you start to uh, realign your spending habits and you're only as and only spending what your salary is that you're taking home, you're going to be setting yourself up for so much success down the line. One final piece on keeping your mindset in check. It's something called the uh, high watermark theory. I don't, I don't know exactly where this came from, but from my years of experience, uh, this sort of psychology mindset of a high watermark, you can think of that as, like, let's say, like um, a, a tide coming in, and you can see on the shore when high tide was because that part of the sand was all wet. And so that's your, your high watermark once the tide goes out. Well, in the same way for your brokerage account, let's say the stock went up and it reached some high value. We used some numbers of around $800,000 earlier. So that's your high watermark. But then this uh, trade war conversation happens, or you know, there's an accounting scandal, or just normal market volatility, and all of a sudden that thing falls down to maybe 700000 or 650000 Honestly, that money hasn't even vested. You maybe aren't going to be using or spending it now. So these are just temporary fluctuations, and you really haven't lost it until you've sold it. And so I want you to be very careful not to be overly anxious and, and set yourself in with a high water mark. So the antidote to that is to always assume that you actually have maybe 50% of the company stock that what you can really count on your balance sheet. So in my example of this family, again, $800,000 between vested and unvested. And uh, really, this family should be thinking, okay, deep down, I'm going to very conservatively assume that I actually have $400,000. And that actually accounts for maybe the taxes that are owed, maybe some stock market volatility. And when I do any of my future planning on spending or saving, investing and whatnot, I'm going to use that 50% less marker as a helpful way for me to just wrap my head around what, what do I actually have here? Okay, I think we've beat this 
as hard as we can on keeping your mindset in check. Let's move on to the second practical tip, which is overlapping a really good insurance and estate plan on top of your investment strategy. And so I think it's common for for folks to get wrapped up in thinking about taxes, thinking about their job, thinking about investments, but they can completely avoid or forget the estate planning conversation and the insurance conversation. So I want to touch on both of those right now. First, let's talk about the estate planning conversation. If you fall into this category, you need to immediately pick up a phone, find somebody in your network that knows an estate planning attorney, and schedule an appointment for next Friday. It's right. It's, it's that serious, and it's with that much intensity that I want to tell you that you need to tend to the estate plan. And it's for things like, what happens if you get sick or injured, or God forbid you or your spouse pass away. What's going to happen to the house? What's going to happen to the kids? Do the kids go live with the grandparents? Do they go live with the creepy aunt and uncle? I mean, there's just all these scenarios that you actually have to be uh, adulting and think about, and the estate plan is really easy to ignore. Gosh, when I worked at Fidelity and I was working with baby boomers who were in their 60s, I had people then that hadn't even put together an estate plan, and I just think, you are so freaking lucky that nothing intensely bad happened, and that's really not a prudent way to manage your family affairs. So even a young person, even as early as, gosh, after post-graduation in their early 20s, uh, even that person is eligible for a, a, a basic estate plan. Uh, I, I'd suggest that you sit down with an attorney, find somebody in your network, and uh, and sit down and then map out, think critically about what would happen to my family should some things happen. The next thing is the insurance plan. You know, certainly you've got probably health insurance through your company. Yeah, that's taken care of. And maybe you've got some life insurance through the company, and that's great. But you still need to meet with an independent insurance agent to talk about things like term or whole life policies that are outside of your company. You know, in the old days, you'd work at a company forever, so you may only need insurance through the company. But how likely is it for you that you're going to change jobs uh, once, twice, gosh, maybe even four or five times in your career? And when you do that, you're going to lose the insurance policies. Uh, Maybe you get to extend the group policy and keep it on. But just to protect yourself, you you really need to build in some independent term or whole life insurance, depending on your situation, and meeting with an experienced insurance agent is going to be able to help you with that. On top of that, considering an umbrella policy. You know, let's say that um, your normal insurance isn't going to cover a big accident at home or whatever the case may be. We're in a litigious environment. So if people get wind that you're a hotshot at your publicly traded company and they don't like that and they can even just smell that you've got all of this company stock out there, that needs to be somehow protected. And so uh, balancing that between an estate plan and an insurance plan is extremely important. I want to stress that the insurance for either term or whole life is critically important, uh, more so even in the beginning part of your career, because let's just think as this family is 
earning maybe $300,000 in total compensation, if you fast forward and extend forward the, 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 the full income of that over the next 20 or 30 years, that is a very large number. And so you potentially have the most to, to lose for your family if you don't ensure that future income uh, early on in life and lock in some potentially lower premiums. Okay, so that was part number two, working on your insurance and estate plan. As your net worth has been growing, you've been getting all this company stock, uh, it's important that you, you work on you know, locking in any potential areas of risk and protecting your family so that you can build this healthy nest egg. Let's now talk about the last step of sitting down with a financial planner to actually map out the timeframes for all of your vesting and the decisions on whether or not you're going to hold or sell this vested stock. You know, it's so important to keep track of the vesting schedules. Some websites make it easier than others, and some life stages are easier than others, you know, with work and kids and whatnot. But ensuring that you've got some type of regular schedule every six months, every one year, and knowing your vesting schedule is so important for two reasons. The first reason is because you'll likely be paying taxes upon vesting, definitely for your your RSUs and for stock options. If you're choosing to exercise that, then that's the time that you'll have to pay taxes on it. But you really need to make sure you understand vesting, exercising, because it has a tax consequence. And the next thing is because you want to know what your flexibility is. When can you get actually your hands on this money so that you can do something with it? Once you've thought about all of the vesting timeframes, some of the tax implications, I now want to suggest that you've actually got a completely clean slate. And what I mean is once you've got the after-tax amount of shares, let's assume that you had that money and it's still in shares form, I want you to think instead of that actually being company stock, just just translate that value into a blank check. Somebody's written you a check, you've gotten it, it's not in your 401k, it's not in your checking or savings account, it's at your brokerage account, and you've got it here, you can actually better use that mindset to figure out how are you going to utilize this money and put it to its best use. And I actually want to take multiple steps back whenever you're here, you've got money that's vested, you've paid taxes on it, and we got to go way back all the way to the emergency fund. That's right. I want to reevaluate your situation from a financial planning standpoint, look at your emergency fund, your short-term, medium, and long-term funds. So first, you, you just need to double check. You probably do, but you need to double check. Does my emergency fund have three to six months of cash sitting aside? Well, if it doesn't, for whatever reason, maybe life has happened or if you had a one-off big expense, the time of vesting is a great opportunity for you to logically say, okay, great, I'm going to move this money aside and that can now backfill and become the backstop for my emergency fund. The next thing, let's assume that you've accomplished that. The next thing to think about is upcoming expenses within the next 12 to 24 months. That's things like, do you need a new car? Are you going to do work around the house like paint or roof? Uh, are you going to do traveling with your family sometime soon? So you can maybe add that up to above and beyond your typical emergency funds. And this vested stock, now you actually have a somewhere to put this money if you choose to sell the stock. And it can be going towards your upcoming expenses. 
The next thing you need to think about are your medium to long-term expenses that you know are pretty somewhat fixed. Let's say things like education or sports for your kids, or even just, you know, saving for another home or whatever the large purchase is. So you might be able to sell some of the invested stock and reinvest that in some place that's maybe either more diversified or less risky uh, with the hopes of using that in, t- in terms of your medium-term expenses. Maybe that's anywhere between six to 10 years out. Assuming all of that has then been taken care of, then you can start thinking about your long-term plans and whether or not you want to keep this or hold this. Even investors like Warren Buffett, you know, one of the wealthiest guys in the entire world, a guy that's really famous for picking stocks and choosing companies to invest in, even a guy like him wouldn't dare to invest more than 20% of his overall portfolio in just one company. And yet here we are with, um, you know, more than 50%, sometimes 80% of a family's net worth all locked up in one company stock. And that's just highly risky. And so if you've got your million dollars here, we can set that target at no more than maybe 20%. Um, but we might have a long time to, to get there and it might not be achievable right away. So if you've got a $800,000 in company stock, Uh, right now, but we want to find a way over the coming five or 10 years to have that be dropped down to something like a 20% level or $160,000. You can start to say, well, that makes sense in the context of backfilling my emergency fund. That makes sense in terms of backfilling my upcoming expenses for a car or travel or, you know, backfilling my my college education expenses. And so then you can start to logically say, all right, I feel comfortable selling this amount and keeping this amount. So another thing you can consider is, again, as this money is vesting, you thinking of it as a blank slate, as cash, choosing to say, uh, I'd like to sell 80%, but keep 20%. You know, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid. I'm getting rah-rah. I think there's a lot of great stuff ahead at my company. So I don't want to get rid of all of it. So maybe you come up with some ratio based on your financial situation, like an 80-20, where you sell 80% of the shares and keep 20% in the company. Again, this isn't advice. It's just an example. But mapping out investing, how you're going to use that money, how you can reinvest, and when you're going to do that will provide an enormous amount of clarity and hopefully a hell of a lot of peace of mind so know you know where you're headed for your family's financial plan. Okay, we talked about three really important things. If you feel like your company stock is becoming to a place where it's dominating your net worth, and the first thing is making sure to keep your mindset in check. Don't let lifestyle creep become you. Don't be one of those silly fools, I have to say it, that lets, uh, that, that, that's trying to keep up with the Joneses. You're only as good as your salary and keep a 50% less marker for a high water mark on your stock. The next is ensuring that you've got an appropriate estate plan and insurance plan that is in line with your growing net worth. And last, working with your financial planner to map out vesting and selling timeframes so that uh, you can build and protect all of this. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. I'd love to hear your feedback. Please send me an email, hit me up on LinkedIn, maybe even on Instagram at The John Chapman Show. 
However you can reach me, I'd love for your feedback. Thanks so much for listening. Now get back out there and kick some butt. We'll see you here next week. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.